0: From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. On today's program, asylum seekers and family separation. President Trump has tried more aggressively than just about any other modern president to stop immigrants from coming into the United States through our southern border. In May, he tightened that policy even further. People who came seeking asylum were immediately detained and separated from their children. According to the Associated Press, Trump administration officials are sending babies as well as small children to what are called tender age shelters in South Texas. Members of the Trump administration defended the separation, including Attorney General Sessions and Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. We will not apologize for the job we do or for the job law enforcement does for for doing the job that the American people expect us to do. This, in turn, sparked protests across the country.
1: Families belong together!
0: Families belong together!
1: Families belong together!
0: Outside of the administration, though, family separation became a red line. All three living former first ladies, and the current one, urged Trump to reconsider the policy. Then on June 20th, President Trump abruptly changed course, signing an executive order. So we're going to have strong, very strong borders, but we're going to keep the families together.
1: I didn't like the sight or the feeling of families being separated.
0: While the order ended the policy of family separation, it didn't address how to reunite. The estimated 2,500 children already separated from their parents. As officials and courts sort out the details of this, left in the middle of the families being held in detention and the children suffering from the trauma of not knowing when or if they'll see their parents again. To help us understand what that means is Anne Chandler. She's been on the front lines of this issue working as the executive director of the Tahirih Justice Center in Houston. That's an organization dedicated to protecting women and children from violence. Welcome, Anne. i really no, appreciate
1: No, it's a pleasure speaking to you.
0: I mean, of course, we're speaking about the border, family separation, and the possibility of family reunification. And despite Trump's executive order last week, I kind of want to go back. I want to know, how did this start? When did you start to see a change in the policy?
1: I think we started to see more children taken from their parents in unusual ways starting in October of last year. And it was a volume that was, I would say, troublesome, (laughs) disconcerting. And uh, we saw it in the midst of really harsh rhetoric that made us think, you know, this could blow up at any moment.
0: So what we're talking about now is this so-called zero-tolerance policy. So have you been to the border recently and, and sort of witnessed the change in how people are received?
1: I have. And, you know, what we saw uh, the first time we were there is we spoke to mothers many days after they had lost their children. And they told us, for example, stories of I was holding my child, an officer came and said they needed to take my child for a bath. And then I let my child go, and I was under the understanding it would be a few minutes, so I asked, and they said, oh, it's taking a little bit longer than necessary. And then I asked again and again, and finally they told me that I wouldn't be seeing my child again, that he had been taken and he would be brought to a different shelter many miles away. So what you're saying is that women were lied to. And did
0: you have these conversations yourself?
1: Yes, and my staff. As we took to the mothers and the setting was quite difficult because we met with individuals who, while we were interviewing them, still had their shackles on their risks. When we would ask a mother, tell me about your separation, as we're trying to collect those stories and get a sense of what is that sense of loss and those moments look for, One woman would be telling her story, and next to her, two or three women down the road would just start sobbing. And so we would take another woman's statement and um, heard from another mother how— all she wanted was to be able to share the medical information of her epileptic child. Her s- child had severe epilepsy, and she knew how sick her child and what those seizures looked like. They would get incredibly violent if her child did not have a very stringent kind of uh, drugs given to her. And she was deeply concerned that the officer that took her child from her had no concern to actually pause and listen to the detailed kind of instructions that she knew regarding what medications her child should be taking and when. And so what she was asking for me is, can you help me relay this information to whoever has my child?
0: And we... Where are the women from that you're speaking to? And you you mentioned now more than once that they were in shackles. Is that new? I mean, were we putting women in shackles before who were bringing children over?
1: I have never seen asylum seekers who arrive with children in tow shackled. And in fact, you know, the rationale I asked a U.S. Marshal, I said, why are they shackled? And he said, it's my instructions. And what these individuals were facing, the crime that they were facing in court that, I guess, caused the Department of Homeland Security to put them in shackles or the U.S. Marshals, I don't know who actually did so, was a misdemeanor, right? A 6 months possible sentence. And in other cases in our country, do we put individuals who are facing a maximum jail time for six months in shackles? The judge who was presiding that day actually walked into the courtroom. And, I mean, the courtroom was beyond full. They couldn't possibly sit another body on a bench. These were mass processing situations.
0: And you were in the courtroom that day when you saw it?
1: Yes, and he he just paused before um, receiving any of the pleas, and he said, I'm going to step outside. I want to come back in, and I don't want to see his single defendant in shackles. And so I I was quite proud of the magistrate that he at least wanted to give the asylum seekers that day a little bit of dignity. And one of the statements that a father asked me, he said, will my six-year-old son arrive in courtrooms with shackles like what I am wearing today? So
0: this is something entirely new, a sort of real criminalization of the asylum-seeking process. And what we saw in the last weeks were children who were Almost preverbal, being separated from families, and I'm curious about what happened. I mean, did did people get a, a wristband? Did someone get a receipt? Is there some tracking mechanism? Is there some way in which a mother whose four year old was taken from her knows where that child is? What's the process?
1: Well, from a parent's perspective, you know, I lived through Hurricane Harvey in Houston. And, you know, I watch emergency responses where if a child or parent is separated, there is very clear procedures of the duration and then what will coming together look like. There was absolutely nothing of the sort on the border. A parent had their child taken was not given any information on what that child identification number is that is used by the immigration system. The parent is given no information on the location of where their child will be sent to. The parent is given one phone number, which is an 800 number, and so the parents still, when we try to get clarity on individual matters, please tell me of what are the options of parental reunification and when and where and what needs to be done, we do not get clear responses.
0: Does that mean there's a chance that some of these children will be permanently separated from their parents? Yes. Yes. And what then? What's the path for those kids, and what's the path for those parents?
1: Well, it's uh, incredibly complicated because the children have been put into a different legal structure that was crafted in a way to protect children who arrive on their own, who are not accompanied by an adult or a legal guardian. And the parents are put on a legal structure right now that is heavily focused on swift removal with very little judicial oversight. And those two different paths don't necessarily have curves that make them come together in a way that a lawyer who's been doing this work can identify to say, oh, now I get it. Now I see how they're going to be reunited. And and I've seen
0: a couple of stories in the process of parents who've already been deported without children, do you think we'll be seeing more of that?
1: I very much wish the answer to that is no, but I haven't heard no in any type of um, executive order (laughs) or policy memo coming out of the Department of Homeland Security. And so I am very terrified that many of the parents that I have visited with here in the Houston detention centers are on a pathway to being removed without their children.
0: Tell us what the detention centers feel like.
1: Is it crowded? Is it tearful? What, what is it like? So, I think the adult detention centers right now, you know where the um, parents are from Central America and in, in Houston, if I could describe them, they look like any other jail they're they're facilities where they're in fact um, individuals who are non immigrants at some of these facilities, and so the structure is kind of similar. They wear traditional jail clothes and what Their communication is one of just kind of intense distress, depression, anguish. One mother, as I was trying to focus on, please tell me about the violence that led you to come to our country so we can fight your immediate deportation, kept going back to the moment of her decision when her name was called to go to that court, at 5 a.m., she did not wake her 8-year-old daughter because the officer who called her to court said, oh, don't worry, when you come back, she'll be here, and you can tell her about where you've been. And when she came back, of course, she was gone. And so she kept going over the trauma like, my daughter's going to think that I intentionally abandoned her. If I could only hear her voice and tell her that I love her, that I'm sorry I didn't wake her, that I have not abandoned her. She just kept going over it and again, and then she would stop to tell me, and tomorrow is going to be one month since I made that decision not to wake my child.
0: Where was that woman from? Guatemala. And what had she fled?
1: It took her five months to get to the United States as the incident that led to her fleeing scared her and for her safety of her daughter so much that she just grabbed what she had in a small bag and took her daughter who she described as, you know, the joy of her life. She had never been away from her daughter for a single day of her life. She was a single mother and said that, you know, any mother whose daughter is at this much risk of future harm would do what I would do and to get out of harm's way. And so she would make it a certain distance, work for food, for pay, for enough money to go another leg of the journey, all the way through very dangerous Mexico to get to our border to ask for asylum. And do you have any idea where her daughter is? No. So despite getting paperwork filed and permission and like and making a phone call, you know, 48 hours, I still have not— been able to connect that daughter and that mother as I'd hoped to on that first conversation.
0: And do you have any sense of where the children were taken to at all of that group who may have been taken that day?
1: Well, we have a sense as we look on a kind of, you know, when we plot, these are the parents we've been able to identify. These are the ones that have asked for us to our assistance. And as we do get paperwork of privilege signed by parents, we can then reach out to the That department I was talking about, the Department of Unaccompanied Children's Services, that's run by Health and Human Services, and locate those children. And we're learning that those children are in New York, Michigan, Miami, California, Texas. They are dotted in detention centers all across the United States. And we have asked for much more transparency from the Health and Human Services to say, where are the separated children? And can you please help us work in a child-parent-focused way to ensure that there is a minimum immediate communication and swift reunification? But we aren't getting that data. They're saying it's private, it's confidential, we can't release anything.
0: How do you track a child who might not even know his or her last name,
1: yeah. who might yeah. not know his mother's name other than mama? Well, how do you track that child? That's a great question. And what's astonishing with me is obviously the Department of Homeland Security booked these individuals and separated them. We know that. We know they have that child's parent's identity. And they put these children in the care of Health and Human Services, and then they contract with a large number of nonprofit organizations, such as in Texas, a big one is called Southwest Keys. And then Southwest Keys hires professionals such as social workers and case managers to support these children. And these case managers are spending their time and their resources trying to figure out the name of the parent and the location of the parent. And the attorneys who are in there are trying to do grounding exercises with the children to get the children calm enough to try to give hints of what some family members' full names may be so that these case managers can find the parents. This is absurd. This is intentional. Why doesn't the Department of Homeland Security obviously share identifying information with the parents with those nonprofit organizations?
0: And when you say calm enough, is that because the children are so distraught that they can't speak and explain? Or what do you mean by calm enough?
1: Some of these children as young as four months old to 17, and each child is in a different situation psychologically of what this separation means to them. But I am speaking to uh, specifically, I think, a very uh, deep concern for, as you were describing, that that younger, um, that nonverbal population. You know, in in Houston, for example, we're looking at the opening of a new shelter whose primary population is going to be for tender age children, for the kids who are under 12. And it's that population that I'm deeply concerned that they had no idea when coming here that they would find themselves, you know, kind of in this journey, uh, not at the side of a loving parent. And when we're looking at family incarceration, and you mentioned
0: building a new shelter for tender age, uh, migrant children, refugee children, are you looking at a a crisis of beds, a crisis of location? I mean, it sounds like where will all these people go?
1: That's a great question. I think the, the agency is definitely feeling that. They're getting variances so that they can be beyond capacity. As I talk to the individuals in the shelters, they tell me, you know, kids are just kind of in hallways. And yes, there's the increased volume in these facilities, but I think what mostly it is is that these facilities were not built on an infrastructure of dealing with a separated child, this young. Traditionally, when you would have a four year old or a six year old, the Office of Refugee Resettlement recognized that group care is not necessarily uh, the least restrictive environment nor appropriate for this age group. So they would traditionally contract for foster families that we're getting federal money to take care of very young children who were unaccompanied. Maybe a sibling that came in with a 17-year-old, for example, or something happened to the mother on the or their father on the journey. But there are only a few f- of those foster beds because, again, we've never dealt with volume like we're dealing with this young age group.
0: And you've been working on this material with battered women, with women who've experienced extreme violence in Central America and for for many years now, but I wonder how this moment is affecting you.
1: I think whenever you see um, a parent who is doing everything they know how to do to keep their child safe and to see our system fail them at this moment is quite crushing, I think I happened to work with another mother who simultaneously, when this was happening, had had a daughter who was killed after being gang raped by the gangs, and she found the body of her daughter. And so she took her other daughter and came to the United States. And I was having a conversation about her asylum process and how it's really hard now to win these cases because the law's changing and becoming more narrow. And she said something to the fact, well, at least they didn't take my daughter away from me. I don't know how I would handle it. And I think at that moment, my ability to kind of remain and have that kind of professional look of an attorney, I couldn't keep it. I just felt like, what are we doing to a population that right now really needs a structured, organized legal process to ascertain whether you have a refugee claim or not.
0: What you hear a lot from this administration and, and others is that there's a country has an obligation to protect the borders. And that doesn't sound like what you're seeing.
1: I, simultaneously, I do think that there is a common shared belief that we have borders. There's absolutely an obligation to have rules regarding entry and deportation on the border. I I just think there's a rejection of this kind of framing of the issue that we see from the administration, that it's either open borders or we must build this wall. It's not a black and white answer. It's in fact, no, we, we, we give individuals an opportunity to present evidence, <laughs> and we have an impartial judge who should evaluate that evidence and make a, deci- a decision as, you know, unfortunately with the world that we live today, these are life and death situations that need nuanced approaches that don't involve cruel measures such as taking kids away from their parents.
0: One of the things I've wondered about is, you know, we see a lot of questions about where are the girls? Um, We've seen more about boys. And given that you really focus on gender-based violence that these women and girls are fleeing, do you have a particular concern about girls being taken and, and put into detention centers?
1: I have concern about the boys, and I have concern about the girls. I, both of them from Central America, and what we see, are facing very high rates of death, of targeting and harm. I think it's a different nature of violence uh, that the girls specifically are focusing, where the gangs will use the girls as sex slaves. Um, One girl uh, was explaining that she really had no idea which one of the gang members was the father of her child. She was raped so many times that she couldn't even possibly make that guess. Uh, We see boys being recruited so violently to be members of the gang that there is no real ability to seek protection from their parents. There is no safe location that these parents can necessarily take a child once they've been targeted. And I'm very concerned about the boys' safety as well. I think that um, for whatever reason, the visual of a girl may make people more sensitive and upset. So we see visuals of a of a young migrant. Maybe that fits more into a a sense of like the young migrant worker and less of the kind of desperate refugee. This isn't the first time I've been concerned about our treatment of family asylum seekers. There was a time in 2014 and 2015 when President Obama and his administration decided that we were going to detain family units until the finality of their case. And so I did have an opportunity when family detention was really being ramped up here in Texas to spend a month with children who were with their mothers who had been detention centers for four, five, six, seven, eight months— And what I saw with children who had been in an inappropriate jail setting for that long is we saw a 7-year-old and a 9-year-old returning to try to breastfeed from their mother. We saw a child try to jump off a roof. We saw one 16-year-old just turn nonverbal and stop talking completely. We saw many signs of children who were 6 to 12 regressing to bedwetting their sheets and then getting bullied. That was a dark, dark moment, I think, in our treatment of asylum seekers. So I hope that we learn from the past. And as we move forward, saying, great, families belong together, completely, I agree. But we cannot do that in inappropriate settings.
0: And I mean, you bring up an interesting point, though, which is that you've seen this through four presidents, I want to say. So, what has been that trajectory? Has anyone done it better?
1: There has been some uh, some amazing studies that have really painted the picture quite in in, in quite detail of um, you know basically our errors of history, where we have tried measures that have have proved that we've really fallen short of just some basic humanitarian values of what it is like to treat someone who has already gone through such horrors as they put together their evidence. And so I I hope that as we kind of see this administration trying to say, come on, courts, let us keep these families in jails, that our courts do look at that detailed history and recognize, you know, like, it's really, really important that we stand up to our country's values of of what a child should be going through as they seek safety. Anne, I
0: really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today and explaining this. My pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Since we spoke to Anne Chandler, a federal judge in San Diego, has ruled that immigrant children already separated must be reunited with their parents within 14 days for those under five years old, and 30 days for children five and older. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bostead and Dan Afron. Our editor this week was Rob Sachs. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.